This is the Commonwealth City Church Podcast. Thanks for listening. Commonwealth is a church in Lexington, Kentucky. For more info, visit our website at commonwealthcitychurch.com and follow us on Instagram at comcitychurch. We hope you enjoy the message. Good morning, guys. It looks like that extra hour of sleep really served you all well. We're packed in here. (laughs) Praise God. Ah, just been already filled up this morning. Our message today is going to be in the middle of of Colossians chapter 3. Caroline read those verses 9 through 11. And we're actually getting to the end here. We're almost done with Colossians. Um, we, We will be finishing it. I think there's three more after today, finishing it up at the end of November as we transition into our Advent season. So you have that. To, to look forward to, but we finally made it to the practical chapter of Colossians, right? Paul is built from chapter one to chapter two to get to chapter three. He laid all of this foundation um, talking about the finished work of Christ. He gets to chapter three, and in, this, in these verses five through 17, you have the practical put-offs and the practical put-ons. And, and 9 and 11, 9 through 11 is like this hinge passage kind of right in the middle between the put-offs and, and the put-ons. And the Greek, the Greek terms there for the put-offs and the put-ons are in regards to clothing. And, and Paul is doing that intentionally. The, the put-off is, is to strip off our clothes and to put on is, is to be dressed um, in, in, what, in, in the clothes that we put on. And he's, he's very intentionally using this terminology to help illustrate this point that what we, what we put on reflects our nature. And he's saying that, that the outward self, uh, the outward dress belong, that belongs to the old self, and the outward dress that belongs to the new self is very different. And, and the problem is that, that those, those two natures, those two, those two selves cannot exist together. They are diametrically opposed. And so what I would like us to do is I, I, I want us to examine this exhortation in chapter 3. In these verses 9, 11, we're going to kind of step back a little bit too into verses 5 through 9. And I, I want to I show you first how, how Paul roots this back in, into chapter 1 and 2 as far as the finished work of Christ. And how that a change of nature precedes a change of dress. And so what I'd like to do is we'll, we'll, we'll kind of work through these terms as far as what is the old self, what is the new self, and then we'll work through Paul's progression in, in how he talks about how our position relative to Christ has changed, and then how that changes both our perspective, our practices, kind of what we wear, and then our partnership with one another. So let's look, let's look first at our position, the fact that our position has changed. And, and Paul makes this clear right away in, in the verb usage, the past tense of the verbs here in, in verses 9 through 11, when he says, um, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self, seeing that. Seeing that is, is not really there in the Greek that was kind of added to show that past tense, but, but it, it, it's really this having put off, okay? It's, this, it's a past tense speaking of a completed action. It's already been done. It's, it's completed in the past. It's over. The old self has gone. We've put on the new self, and, and that part has happened already, and Adam answered that question of who this passage is talking about a couple weeks ago when he went through 
um, when he went through these verses in regards to that Paul is, is now, he's speaking to the, to the Christians. He's speaking to the believers here. He's dealt with the heresies. He's dealt with laying this foundation. He's speaking directly to the believers. And he says, listen, this old self is gone. Our position has changed. That is in the past. The new has come. And he shows that, for instance, in, in Colossians 2, 11 through 12, he says, in, in him, in Christ... By putting off the body of flesh, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. Now, there are three times in the New Testament that this old self terminology, as it's found here, is, is used. Three times, and we're going to look at the other two here. Romans 6 6, Paul says that we know our old self was crucified. It was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So he says our old self is, is crucified. And then in Ephesians 4.22, he uses similar language. He says, to put off our old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. So our old self is crucified and our old self is corrupt through deceitful desires. Guys, we have to be rooted in that. We have to recognize that as believers, our position has changed. Everything else that follows from this is rooted in that fact that the old is gone and the new has come. We were once afar off, but now we've been brought near. We were once alienated and hostile in mind, as Paul says, but, but we have been brought to new life. That old corrupt self has been crucified with Christ. Paul reiterates this in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, and he says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. Praise God. The old is gone and the new has come. New creation. They don't exist together. The old is completely wiped away and the new has come. Our position has changed. And our relationship with that old self has been terminated. And Paul reminds us in verse 3 of chapter 3 that you've died. That's past tense again. He says you have died and your life is hidden with Christ. That's a present active verb or perfect tense verb that indicates that it's ongoing and permanent. It has no end. It's been changed and it's continuing on. We are hidden with Christ and God. And so if our position has changed, church, how does that, how do, how does that flow out into this practical, per, this practical uh, chapter of, um, of chapter three, this passage here? Well, first, Paul says it changes our perspective. It means he says in, in Colossians 3, 1 and 2, that if we've been raised with Christ, we seek the things that are above where Christ is. He's seated at the right hand of God and set our, things, uh, uh, set our minds on things above, not on things that, that are on earth. And so where, where does that change happen? Where does that perspective change happen? And Paul says it happens in, in the mind. And he reiterates that again in verse 10 of chapter 3 when he says, having put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. He's already established the fact that that creator is Jesus. In Colossians 1.15, he said that Jesus is the image of the invisible God and that everything, everything was created through him and for him. And I also believe that Paul calls attention back to Genesis kind of 126 language where he created man and he said, let us make man in our own image 
to emphasize that in the first man, in, in the first man, Adam came sin and death, but now through Jesus Christ, the better Adam, a true image and true likeness is being formed. And he says it this way in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, The first Adam became a living being, and the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. The first man is from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So we see that our, our nature has changed, and that affects our position relative to Christ. We've moved from death to life, old to new, And it begins to mentally change our perspective as we shift our minds upward to where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And we come to kind of the focal point here of these verses 5 through 17 where it changes our practices. It changes what we wear spiritually. It changes our spiritual, our lifestyle, our dress, our attire. And the putting off and the putting on then hinge on that miracle transformation that's taken place, that our position has been changed, that we are hidden in Christ. So Paul has made clear that 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 inner nature has changed in 2 Corinthians 4.16. Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. But there is a problem Christ has redeemed us, He's forgiven us, He's resurrected us to new life, He's given us His Spirit. But we remain in this fleshly sin suit, and we wrestle with the flesh. There's a, there's a reason that Jesus calls it in John 3, being born again, because we're to grow up into his likeness, like children grow up into the likeness of their parents as they get older. And part of that process of growing up, we have to learn to strip away the old, dirty, dingy, nasty clothes of the old self and put those away and replace it with the white garments of Christ. Replace it with the things that we'll be talking about next week in 12 through 17 with compassion, kindness, holiness, meekness, and patience. And that love binds all of those things together. That, that beautiful white robe of Christ. And so next week, like I said, we're going to be focusing more on the put-ons. And today, I want to spend some time looking at what we are to put off. I loved the message that God gave Adam um, a couple of weeks ago. I felt like it was so timely. It was so um, practical in regards to how we go about putting sin to death. If you have not listened to that, please put it at the top of your to-do list. Go back and listen to that because I feel like it's a foundation for everything else that I'm going to be talking about today. That he, 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 he outlined the how we put things to death. And so he gave us that biblical example of, of how to walk through that. And so what I, what I want us not to do, and I, I wrestled so hard with the Lord, he changed this last minute on me as far as what this message was even going to be today. And I felt like he really wanted me to go back and focus on these specific sins in this chapter because Paul put them here for a reason. And they're not comfortable. They're not comfortable to go through. But I believe that these nasty, dirty clothes are still hanging on us to a certain extent. We, we put them in the closet and we go back to them. In moments of weakness or fear or apathy or anxiety. And they're saying, put me on. 
put me on. And we go and we indulge our flesh. So let's, let's look at these. Let's look at these specifically here in, in verse 5. Notice that this passage includes two lists of vices, and then it's followed next week in, in, in 12 through 17 of, um, of a list of virtues. The first of which focus more specifically on the secret sins, the ones that no one wants to talk about, at least within the church, and the ones that carry so much shame. And then he follows that up with the second list of more social sins that tend to get kind of overlooked. They're the ones that we kind of disregard, the ones that kind of everybody struggles with and we just, we just kind of overlook. And so, so let's, look, let's look at this. Let's look at verses five, 5 through 8 here, or five, 5 and 6. He says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, Passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Like I said, Paul's, this initial list that he gives here deal primarily with those of a sexual nature. That's why I said these were secret, typically. The first four sins are overtly illicit, and the final one addresses what I believe to be the root of this behavior. So let, we'll go through these one at a time. The first one is sexual morality. The Greek word there is porneia, which is a term that refers to any kind of sexual sin. It's where we get our English word for pornography. The second one is impurity. In general, in a general sense, it speaks to moral corruption. It's, it's commonly used to point to sins of a sexual nature. In two, two places specifically in Romans 1, 24, Paul writes, Therefore God gave them up, talking about the ungodly who refused to acknowledge him as God. He said, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. And in 1 Thessalonians 4, 7 after calling the Thessalonians to abstain from sexual morality, he lists a lot of the exact same sins here. He says, God's not called us for impurity, but in holiness. The third one is passion. Another word for that is lust. And in that same passage, 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul writes, control your own body in holiness and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Clearly, this is an old self behavior. He's calling these out as old self, things that are to be put away. And it's used three times in the New Testament, all of which are mentioned alongside sexual sins. The fourth one is desire, and it, it almost seems redundant, and I think he does it on purpose. I think he chooses another word to say the exact same thing because he wants to emphasize this, that it desire, it, and it's evil desire, See, he clarifies that, that it's evil desire, a way of saying it's forbidden lust. It's a craving of what is, forget, what is forbidden. And although the final sin here in the list appears to be unrelated, covetousness, I think if you look at it, you'll see that, that it actually is, is quite related. Another word for covetousness is greed. And it refers to this insatiable desire for more. 
That is always true of the enticing nature of sexual sin. Always true. And it could easily be that motivating factor for those previous four. One commentator in regards to that 1 Thessalonians 4 passage talks about sexual greed. And he says that covetousness, it likely includes sexual, sexual greed as a parent from the exhortation against sexual morality. Where all of those same words are, are equated with sexual greed. And then it would seem that when he follows this up with, which is idolatry, that he's talking specifically about covetousness. And I think he is to a certain degree, but I think he's also including all of those things in that list. It's as if Paul wants them and us to see the idolatrous root of all of these sinful behaviors. And he challenges us to consider what is the underlying issue here. That a failure to adopt and abide by Sex, the way God has defined it, the way Jesus has defined it, is ultimately a refusal to submit to his lordship. Which makes the following verse after this even more heavy, even more weighty, when he says, On the count of these, the wrath of God is coming. Now, I've, I've wrestled so much with this yesterday. On... Just wanting to move on from there. <laughs> but I felt like the Lord wanted me to pause so that we would feel the, the, the weight of this. Paul is saying here how the reality of hidden habitual sin, especially sexual sin, is ravaging not just our unbelieving society, but it's ravaging the church. It's a roaring lying, seeking who it can devour. And guys, it's devouring our men it's devouring our women. It's devouring our families. It's devouring our children. It's devouring our relationships with Christ. It's undermining. It's undermining our relationships with Him. It's telling us that it's a secret, but it's affecting everything. I listened this week to a podcast on Family Talk. James, Dobson, James Dobson's uh, Family Top podcast, I commend it to you. It's a two-part series entitled America's Porndemic. And they speak, they spent two sessions talking about how the pandemic, the isolation, the heightened fear and anxiety around all of that has fueled an already obsessive and addictive behavior around pornography. If you don't believe me that this is a spiritual pandemic, I'm going to read you some statistics that they quoted from a recent Barna research study. This was overwhelming to me. It says, over 40 million Americans regularly access adult content. The adult entertainment industry's annual revenue is more than the combined revenues of ABC, CBS, and NBC. Nearly 47% of families in the United States reported that this is a problem in their home. Studies show that 56% of America's divorces involved one party having an obsessive internet interest in adult websites and that it increases marital infidelity by 300%. The average age of first exposure is 11. That's the average age. I can personally to account to say I was exposed at a younger age than that. And tragically, 
it said that 94%, 94% of our kids will see it by the age of 14. And guys, this isn't just external to the church. Christians are not immune. It said that 68% of church-going men are viewing it on a regular basis. Of young Christian adults, 18 to 24, 76% actively search for it. And this is, this is not just an issue with men anymore. It's becoming more and more common that, that women as well. It said that 13% of self-identified Christian women say they've never watched it. Only 13% say they've never watched it. And if you flip that around, that's saying 87% say that they, they, have a view, they have viewed adult content. Which means this isn't just a conversation for us to be having with our sons. It's a conversation that we need to be having with our daughters, with our children. And if we don't introduce it to them, if we don't teach them the biblical aspects, the beautiful nature of of what God has designed within marriage, intimacy within marriage, like the world's going to teach them something completely different. They're going to be bombarded by it. It's going to happen, and at a much younger age than you think. Guys, we cannot be the bride of Christ, traipsing around in the dark, slipping on those dingy garments, putting on the old self, putting on those, those garments of the old self, and indulging our flesh. As John Owen so aptly put it, and Adam quoted this last time, if we are not killing sin, it will be killing us. It is killing us. It must be brought to the light and exposed. Men, we must fight like our lives depend on it because it does. We must fight like the lives of our children and our families depend on it because they do. Don't wait until you're married to decide to to, to start fighting this. Put it off now. Put it off now. Adam laid it out so beautifully last time in regards to, this is kind of his, his steps in a nutshell. You, you, you lay it out open and, and bare. You confess it fully to God and to others. You feel that crushing weight of it and then you plunge it beneath the blood of Christ at the cross who died to set us free. And then you replace it. Remember the illustration that he gave of, of filling a vacuum like with the empty the empty jar and he poured the water and he filled it up and he says you don't just cut it off that's why there's spiritual put-ons here is you fill it up with an expulsive power of a new affection is the way he put it and then we don't go back down those same paths there's a reason proverbs 5 says that the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey but her end is destruction You don't go walking back down the same path. You go another way. When Jesus talks about this in Matthew 5, he uses very intense language. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, if your hand, right hand causes you to sin, you sever it. You cut it off. You pluck out the eye. He recognized the seriousness of this. If you give it an inch, it takes a mile. He says, it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. Because we must do the hard things to dig the root of this out and put it to death and replace it with new holy affections. For some of us, that means 
Streaming services need to be gone. Some of us, that means that social media needs to be gone. Some of us, that means we need to go back to flip phones. I don't know. Like whatever it takes. And even more than than just putting up walls and barriers which have their place and are necessary. It's it's being open and, and bare. Finding accountability. Confessing that sin and putting it to death. It hates the light. It absolutely hates the light. And it, it will convince you that you got this. And a few months down the road, you realize, man, I'm right back down the path of the forbidden woman. Guys, Jesus did not conquer sin and death on the cross for us to go back and put on our old dingy garments. We must put it to death. We can't expect to indulge and binge on sex-ridden entertainment and then expect our spiritual taste buds expect our spiritual taste buds to want the things of the, of the Lord the honey of the word to long for our savior to long for heaven it just don't happen it's numbing it takes that desire away let Romans 6:12 through 14 be true of us Let not sin therefore reign in our mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law but under grace. Praise God. Put it to death. Put it to death. I'm running low on time. Let's look at this next list. This first five focus on these hidden sins. And I believe this next focuses more on social sins. And notice in verse 8 when he he brings up the putting away again, it's it's a parallel back to that putting to death. So it reiterates the fact that these also don't align with this new identity. So Colossians 8 and 9, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. So let's walk through these quickly. The first two here, anger and wrath, are very closely related. And most of the time, one commentator pointed out that those two terms are combined over 40 times in the New Testament. Typically as fierce anger. They're often used to describe God's righteousness against, or sorry, God's righteous anger against wrath and, and wrath towards sin. But then when, when we use them, it's, it's we usurp God's divine authority. And when you join that with malice, those first three there, which is a, a general term for just evil intentions toward another person, then it becomes this like poison in our relationships that is, is toxic and it promotes conflict and division which I think in our, in our culture, we, we see a lot of conflict and a lot of division. The last two on this list, slander and obscene talk, are followed by do not lie to one another. And they take that same malicious attitude and, it, 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 and they manifest themselves in harsh words and actions. When we direct it at God, like Ephesians 4.31 talks about in 1 Timothy 6, it's, it's, trans, it's translated as blasphemy. But many times we forget that 
Um, as James 3 reminds us that people are created, all of us are created in the image of God. And he calls that out in James 3 in reference to our tongues. He says, with our tongue, we, we bless God, but we also curse man who's made in the image of God. And in the same way, that is a type of blasphemy. And then he, he says, the second list, of as he closes the second list, similar to kind of what he did in, in the first list, he says, from your mouth. And I think, I think it's important for us to reflect on that concluding phrase relative to what he, he closed out about regarding idolatry in the first list that it, it also reflects this rebellious heart, this rebellious nature against God. Matthew 12, 34 says, Out of the overflow of the heart, our mouths speak. And so I think he's showing that what comes out of our mouths represents what's in our heart and the sinful state of it. And it's starkly contrasted also against the proper worship that he's going to get to in, in these put-ons in regards to uh, praise and thanksgiving to God. And that, this, this brings us to the last verse in this, in this section, verse, verse 11. And it highlights this, the significance of Paul's individual instruction that he's been given and shows how it affects the church collectively as a whole. And he takes it a step further by pointing out these certain types of distinctions and how they're eliminated in the new humanity. And so because Jesus has changed our position... Remember, death, life, old, new, our, new our, our, our perspective changes, our practices change, what we wear, and then lastly here, our partnership must change. So let's look at, at verse 11. Here there's not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. So this is not just a matter of personal habits or personal attitudes. It's also an abolishing of all the cultural and ethnic barriers that divide us. This is a, a new partnership. This is a new humanity created in the likeness of Christ. I heard one pastor in Atlanta, he planted a church intentionally, like tried to be as multi-ethnic and as diverse as possible. And he kind of coined this phrase based on this verse in regards to, he says, we have, we're, we're new ethnics. That was the terminology that he used, because we're a new humanity. And whether it, this new family no longer favors race or nationality or class, culture, ethnicity, political parties. It only favors Jesus Christ because he is all and he's in all. Let's take a look at these distinctions really quick. So the first two sets of terms, Greek and Jew and circumcised and uncircumcised, are used frequently throughout the New Testament. And they typically represent those two categories of people. One that a lot of times Jew and Gentile is also interchangeable there. But, but the Jews, from the Jewish perspective, and, and obviously in the Old Testament, they were God's chosen people. They were set apart. Um, and, and relative to Gentiles being, like, Jews weren't even allowed to go into a Gentile home. That's how, like, divided this culture was. And so, from a Jewish perspective, a lot of the, those in the Colossian church were still wrestling with identity, much, much with, like, what we, what we struggle with still today. And so, they, when the Gentiles came in, or the barbarians or Scythians, when they came in, they said, well, you got to be Jewish first you got to be circumcised first, and you got to celebrate all these festivals. That's why he addressed that in chapter 2, before you can, you can serve Christ. And Paul says, no, this is a new humanity. 
He mentions that again in Ephesians 2, and he talks about how the death and resurrection of Christ tore down that division. He tore down that dividing wall of hostility. And so then he gets progressively deeper in this cultural divide. He gets to barbarian and Scythian. And this one's interesting because both of these are barbarians. Uh, they're, they're the same kind of people, but one is, is even more uncivilized and even more beastly in nature. So he's, I don't know if you've heard this, but the reason they were called barbarians in Roman time was because they didn't understand their language and it sounded like they were just going bar, 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 bar. And so they said, oh, barbarians. Like that, that was really how they, how they got their name. And, and so Paul is, is continuing to point out the, the largest cultural and socioeconomic divides here. And he's saying these, these, are, these are abolished. And he comes to slave and free. And he frequently uses these in his writings. And, and I think this is a, a bigger um, issue for him because in a lot of ways he addresses it in multiple ways. He's going to address it again at the end of chapter 3 in more detail and we have also his letter to Philemon, who was, who was a member of the Colossian church. And he writes to Philemon regarding his um, runaway slave, Onesimus, who Paul has the, the, uh, uh, leads to Christ. And he writes Philemon and he says, you receive this, this man back as your brother. He's no longer a slave to you. This has been abolished in Christ. So the reality is, guys, that the church is still divided. It's still divided over race and gender and culture and ethnic distinctions. And much of which has been really heightened in this last couple of years as our culture continues to put up these invisible walls. Um, and, and a lot of it is, is hostile even within the church. But we must fight, guys, as the church to live out this new humanity, to live out what Christ has called us to be, to live out that he is, he is all and that he is in all. And we must fight against that cultural pride that separates us, that elevates our way of life or our ethnicity or our culture above others. I think not only does it devalue our brothers and sisters in Christ, but more importantly, it devalues devalues the, the work of Christ, whose death has broken down the dividing wall. But you might ask, like, well, what about our heritage? Does that not matter anymore? And I would say absolutely it matters. It does matter. We're not talking about assimilation. You've heard us say before, like, the, uh, oneness does not mean sameness. It doesn't mean everybody becomes the same. It's, this new humanity is a woven tapestry of diversity. Everything that is beautiful and Christ-exalting and God-honoring and life-giving from your heritage, our heritage is brought into the new humanity to beautify it. And then whatever isn't, we cut it away But guys, the beauty of the body of Christ is found in its cohesive unity with its blended diversity. Where Christ is all and in all. Because if he's everything, then everything else pales in comparison. And so I want to close with kind of the implications of all of this. And as you guys, um, I don't know, seek the Lord this morning, can you throw up that slide please? pray that he is stirring hearts this morning, that he is working in you, telling you what things that need to be put to death, what things need to be put on, what those new affections need to be that you pursue. 
So first, it's position. What is your position relative to Christ? Rest in that. Rest in the finished work of Christ. If you're a believer in Christ Jesus, rest in the work that he's put the old self away and that the new has come. You might be here this morning and and say, well, I I don't think my position has changed. Maybe the Lord is is revealing to you that, that you need to be saved that you need to trust Christ, that he needs to take away the old self and replace it with the new self. Trust him. He's worthy. He's able to do it. He is able to put your sin to death. He has made the way. So what is your position? A change of nature must precede a change of dress. All of these other things flow from that. Your perspective, what aspects of your mind need to be renewed to foster a more heavenward gaze. Practices. What sexual sins described in this passage do you need to put off? What social sins do you need to put off? And then partnership in in the family of God. How does our union with Christ bring unity to others in the church? And what do we need to do? What do we need to put off that's hindering that? Guys, Christ is all He is in all. He has given us the power. 2 Peter 1, 3, and 4. Like his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. He's given us that opportunity. He wants to change you. He wants us to walk in holiness. He wants us to put to death the the deeds of of the flesh. He wants us to put to death the old man the old self, those clothes, and put on the new robes of righteousness. And so this morning, I pray that that you might hesitate before you come to take communion this morning and seek his face. What is he stirring in you? How is he moving in you? Let's pray this morning. Jesus, we just, we just stare at you and say, thank you. We just exalt you. We praise you. We lift you up. We thank you for your gift of perfect righteousness. We thank you for, for robbing the, the powers and authorities and putting them to open shame. Thank you for nailing our debt of sin that says we deserve death. Thank you for nailing that to the cross. Father, I pray that it is for freedom that you have set us free. Or may we not be a church in bondage to sin anymore. You have freed us from sin. May we walk in the power of the new self. Lord, I pray that chains would be broken this morning. I pray that perspectives would be shifted to heaven and that our practices would be becoming of that of our new self of our creator formed in the image of Christ have your way in in this body have your way in me oh Jesus